Section 16 of The Most Extraordinary Trial of William Palmer by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Eighth day, May the 22nd. His Royal Highness, the Duke of Cambridge, was among the distinguished persons who were accommodated with seats upon the bench. The learned judges, Lord Campbell, Mr. Baron Alderson, and Mr. Justice Cresswell took their seats at ten o'clock. The prisoner was at once placed at the bar. His demeanour was, as on the previous days of his trial, calm and attentive, but betrayed no additional anxiety. Immediately after the learned judges took their seats, Lord Campbell said, Before the proceedings commence, I must express a most earnest hope that until this trial is concluded the public journals will continue to abstain from any comments upon the merits of the case or upon any part of the evidence the propriety of this course is so obvious as to need no explanation this warning ought to extend to the insertion of letters as much as to that of editorial articles thomas nunley examined by mr grove I am Fellow of the College of Surgeons and Professor of Surgery at the Leeds School of Medicine. I am also a member of several medical and learned societies, foreign and English, and have been in practice between twenty and thirty years. I have a large practice and have seen cases of both traumatic and idiopathic tetanus. Of the latter disease I have seen four cases. They did not all commence with lockjaw. One did not commence so, nor did lockjaw become so marked in it as to prevent swallowing once during the course of the disease. I have heard the evidence as to the symptoms of Cook, and had previously read the depositions as to that part of the case. Judging from those symptoms, I am of opinion that death was caused by some convulsive disease. I found that opinion upon the symptoms described in the depositions and the evidence before the court lord campbell said that the witness could only be examined as to his opinion founded upon the viva voce evidence before the court mr grove said that his object was to distinguish between the opinion founded on the viva voce evidence and that founded on the depositions examination continued from the symptoms described by the witness in court I am of opinion that death was caused by some convulsive disease. Looking at Cook's general state of health, Mr. Baron Alderson, you have nothing to do with that. You must only give an opinion upon the symptoms described in evidence. Examination continued. By Mr. Sergeant Shee. I have been in court during the whole of the trial. I have heard the evidence as to the symptoms of Mr. Cook's health previous to his final attack at Rugeley, the description of the actual symptoms during the paroxysms, and the appearance of the body on the post-mortem examination. Do you remember the account of the syphilitic sores? The Attorney General objected to this mode of putting the question, because it was an assumption that these sores existed. A medical man ought to be asked his opinion on the supposition only that certain symptoms existed. Mr. Justice Cresswell, let the witness describe what he assumes to have been the state of Cook's health, and you will then see whether he is justified in his assumption. 
Examination continued. I assumed that Cook was a man of very delicate constitution, that for a long period he had felt himself to be ailing, for which indisposition he had been under medical treatment, that he had suffered from syphilis, that he had disease of the lungs, and that he had old-standing disease of the throat, that he led an irregular life, that he was subject to mental excitement and depression, and that after death appearances were found in his body which showed this to have been the case. There was an unusual appearance in the stomach. The throat was in an unnatural condition. The back of the tongue showed similar indications. The air vessels of the lungs were dilated. In the lining of the aorta there was an unnatural deposit, and there was a very unusual appearance in the membranes of the spinal marrow. One of the witnesses also said there was a loss of substance from the penis. That scar on the penis could only have resulted from an ulcer. A chancre is an ulcer, but an ulcer is not necessarily a chancre. The symptoms at the root of the tongue and the throat I should ascribe to syphilitic inflammation of the throat. Supposing these symptoms to be correct, I should infer that Cook's health had, for a long time, not been good, and that his constitution was delicate. His father and mother died young. Supposing that to have been his state of health, it would make him liable to nervous irritation. That might be excited by moral causes. Any excitement or depression might produce that effect. A person of such health and constitution would be more susceptible of injurious influence from wet and cold than would one of stronger constitution. Upon such a constitution as that which I have assumed Cook's to have been, convulsive disease is more likely to supervene. I understand that Cook had three attacks on succeeding nights occurring about the same hour. As a medical man, I should infer from this that the attacks were of a convulsive character. I infer that in the absence of other causes to account for them, according to my personal experience and knowledge from the study of my profession, convulsive attacks are as various as possible in their forms and degrees of violence. It is not possible to give a definite name to every convulsive symptom. There are some forms of convulsion in which the patient retains his consciousness. There are forms of hysteria, sometimes found in the male sex. It is also stated that there are forms of epilepsy in which the patient retains consciousness. By Lord Campbell I cannot mention a case in which consciousness has been retained during the fit. No such case has come under my notice. Examination continued. I know by reading that that, although rarely, does sometimes occur. The degree of consciousness in epilepsy varies very much. In some attacks the consciousness is wholly lost for a long time. Convulsive attacks are sometimes accompanied by violent spasms and rigidity of the limbs. Convulsions, properly so called, sometimes assume a titanic complexion. I heard the passage from the works of Dr. Copland, read to the court yesterday. I agree with what he states. Convulsions arrive from almost any cause, from worms in children, affections of the brain in adults, hysteria, and in some persons the taking of chloroform. Adults are sometimes attacked by such convulsions. 
affections of the spinal cord or eating indigestible food will produce them. I know no instance in which convulsions have arisen from retching and vomiting. I agree with Dr. Copland that these convulsions sometimes end immediately in death. The immediate proximate cause of death is frequently asphyxia. By Lord Campbell Death from a spasm of the heart is often described as death by asphyxia. Examination continued. I have seen convulsions recurring. I have seen that in various cases. The time at which a patient recovers his ease after a violent attack of convulsions varies very much. It may be a few minutes, or it may be hours. From an interval between one convulsion and another, I should infer that the convulsions arise from some slight irritation in the brain or the spinal cord. When death takes place in such paroxysms, there is sometimes no trace of organic disease to be found by a post-mortem examination. Granules between the duramata and the arachnoids are not common at any age. I should not draw any particular inference from their appearance. They might or might not lead to a conjecture as to their cause and effect. I do not form any opinion upon these points. They might produce an effect upon the spinal cord. There are three preparations in museums where granules are exhibited in the spinal cord in which the patients are said to have died from tetanus. Those are at St. Thomas's Hospital. To ascertain the nature and effect of such granules, the spinal cord ought to be examined immediately after death. Not the most remote opinion could be formed upon an examination made two months after death, more especially if the brain had been previously opened. Independently of the appearance of granules, it would not after that period be possible to form a satisfactory opinion upon the general condition of the spinal cord. If there were a large tumour, or some similar change, it might be exhibited, but neither softening nor induration of the structure could be perceived. The nervous structure changes within two days of death. To ascertain minutely its condition, it is necessary to use a lens or microscope. That is required in an examination made immediately after death. I have attended cases of traumatic tetanus. That disease commonly begins with an attack upon the jaw. One of the four cases of idiopathic tetanus that I have seen was my own child. In three of those cases, the disease began with lockjaw. The fourth case commenced in the body, the facility of swallowing remaining. I have, within the last twelve months, made post-mortem examinations of two persons who had died from strychnia. I did not see the patients before death. In both cases I ascertained, by chemical analysis, that death had been caused by strychnia. In both I found the strychnia. In one case, that of a lady aged twenty-eight years, I made my examination forty-two hours after death, and in the other thirty hours. In the former case, the body had not been opened before I commenced my examination. The witness read a report of this examination in which it was stated that the eyelids were partially open and the globes flaccid and the pupils dilated. The muscles of the trunk were not in the least rigid. Indeed, they were so soft that the body might be bent in any direction. 
the muscles at the hip and shoulder joints were not quite so flaccid but they allowed these joints to be easily moved while those of the head and neck forearms etc were rigid the fingers were curved and the feet somewhat arched all the muscles when cut into were found soft and dark in colour the membranes of the liver were exceedingly vascular the membrane of the spinal cord was much congested there was bloody serum in the pericardium the lungs were distended and some of the air cells were ruptured the lining membrane of the trachea and bronchial tubes were covered with a layer of dark bloody mucus of a dark chocolate colour the thoracic vessels and membranes were much congested and the blood was everywhere dark and fluid after reading this report the witness continued in the second case i made my examination thirty hours after death i first saw the body about twelve hours after death it was a woman somewhere near twenty years of age the witness also read the report of the examination in this case the appearances of the body were substantially similar to those presented in the previous case in two other cases i have seen a patient suffering from overdoses of strychnia neither of those cases was fatal in one case i had prescribed the twelfth of a grain and the patient took one-sixth that was for a man of middle age strychnia had been given in solution in a few minutes the symptoms appeared they were a want of power to control the muscles manifested by twitchings rigidity and cramp more violent in the legs than in any other part of the body the spasms were not very violent they continued six hours before they entirely disappeared during that time they were intermittent at various intervals as the attack passed off the length of the intervals increased at first their length was but a few seconds the spasms were not combated by medical treatment the other case was a very similar one the quantity taken was the same double what i had prescribed i have experimented upon upwards of sixty animals with strychnia those animals were dogs cats rats mice guinea pigs frogs and toads the symptoms of the attack in all animals present great resemblances some animals are however much more susceptible of its influence than others are the period elapsing between the injection of the poison and the commencement of the symptoms has been from two minutes to thirty more generally five or six i administered the poison occasionally in solution but more generally in its solid state it was sometimes placed dry upon the back of the tongue and some fluid poured down the throat sometimes it was enclosed between two portions of meat sometimes mixed up with butter or suet sometimes rolled up in a small piece of gut to frogs and toads it was administered by putting them into a solution of strychnia i have also applied it direct to the spinal cord and in some other cases to the brain the first symptom has been a desire to be quite still then hurried breathing then slavering at the mouth when the poison had been given through that organ then twitching of the ears trembling of the muscles inability to walk convulsions of all the muscles of the body the jaws being generally firmly closed the convulsions attended by a total want of power in the muscles which on the least touch were thrown into violent spasms with a galvanic-like shock 
spasms also come on if the animal voluntarily attempts to move that is usually the case but occasionally the animal is able to move without inducing a recurrence of the spasms these spasms recur at various periods but do not always increase in violence the animals die after periods varying from three hours to three hours and a half in the cases where the animals live longest the paroxysms occur at the longest intervals in all cases in the interval before death the rigidity ceases i know no exception to this and the muscles become quite soft powerless and flaccid the limbs may be put in any position whatever there is but little difference from ordinary cases of convulsive death in the time at which the rigor mortis comes on i have destroyed animals with other poisons and there is very little difference between the rigidity in their cases and that in the cases of death from strychnia in the two women i have mentioned the rigor mortis was much less than is usual in cases of death from natural disease i have known fatal cases of poisoning animals by strychnia in which there has between the first and the second paroxysm been an interval of about half an hour but that is not common i have examined the bodies of upwards of forty animals killed by strychnia i have invariably found the heart full on the right side very generally the left ventricle firmly contracted and the blood usually dark and often fluid there is no particular appearance about the spine i have experimented with other poison upon upwards of two thousand animals and have written upon this subject it very often happens that in the case of animals dying suddenly from poisoning the blood is fluid after death that also happens in cases of sudden death from other causes i have attended to the evidence as to the symptoms exhibited by cook on the sunday monday and tuesday night the symptoms on sunday night i assume to have been great excitement cook described himself as having been very ill and in such a state that he considered himself mad for a few minutes he stated that the cause of this was a noise in the street these symptoms on the three nights i have mentioned do not resemble those which i have seen follow the administration of strychnia cook had more power of voluntary motion than i have observed in animals under the influence of this poison he sat up in bed and moved his hands about freely swallowed talked and asked to be rubbed and moved none of which if poisoned by strychnia could he have done the sudden accession of the convulsions is another reason for believing that they were not produced by strychnia other reasons for believing that the convulsions were not produced by strychnia are their sudden accession without the usual premonitory symptoms the length of time which had elapsed between their commencement and the taking of the pills which are supposed to have contained poison and the screaming and vomiting i never knew an animal which had been poisoned with strychnia to vomit or scream voluntarily i apprehend that where there is so much spasm of the heart there must be inability to vomit in the cases related in which attempts were made to produce vomiting they did not succeed there is such a case in the tenth volume of the journal de pharmacie in which an emetic was given without success the symptoms exhibited after death by animals poisoned by strychnia differ materially from those presented by the body of cook in his case the heart is stated to have been empty and uncontracted 
Lord Campbell. I do not remember that. I think it was said that it was contracted. Mr. Baron Alderson. According to my note, Dr. Harlan said that the heart was contracted and contained no blood. Examination continued. The lungs were not congested, nor was the brain. In the case of animals which have recovered, the paroxysms have subsided gradually. I never knew a severe paroxysm followed by a long interval of repose. I have experimented upon the discovery of strychnia in the bodies of animals in various stages of decomposition, from a few hours after death up to the forty-third day, in which latter case the body was quite putrid. It has never happened to me to fail to discover the poison. I have experimented in about fifteen cases. Supposing a person to have died under the influence of strychnia poison in the first paroxysm, and his stomach to have been taken out and put into a jar on the sixth day after death, must strychnia have, by a proper analysis, been found in the body? Yes. If the strychnia be pure, such as is almost invariably found among medical men and druggists, the test is nitric acid, which gives a red colour, which in a great measure disappears on the addition of protochloride of tin. If the strychnia be pure, it does not undergo any change on the addition of sulphuric acid, but on an addition of a mixture of bichromate of potash with several other substances, it produces a beautiful purple, which changes to varying shades until it gets to be a dirty red. There are several other tests. In this case, the stomach was not, in my opinion, in an unfavourable condition for examination. The circumstances attending its position in the jar and its removal to London will give a little more trouble, but would not otherwise affect the result. If the deceased had died from strychnia poison, it ought to have been found in the liver, spleen, and kidneys. I have seen this poison found in similar portions of animals, which have been killed by it. I have also seen it found in the blood. That was by Mr. Herapath of Bristol. Could the analyses be defeated or confused by the existence in the stomach of other substance which would produce the same colours? No. Supposing that pyrozantine and salicine were in the parts examined, their existence would not defeat the analysis. Pyrozantine is very unlikely to be found in the stomach. It is one of the rarest and most difficult to be obtained. The distinction between pyrozantine and strychnia is quite evident. Pyrozantine changes to a deep purple on the addition of sulfuric acid alone, and the bichromate of potash spoils the colour. In strychnia, no change is produced by sulfuric acid. It requires the addition of the bichromate to produce the colour. Supposing the death to have been caused by a dose of strychnia, not more than sufficient to destroy the animal, would it be so diffused by the process of absorption that you would not be able by these tests to detect it in any portion of the system? No, I believe it would not. Had that question occupied your attention before you were called upon to give evidence upon this trial? It had. What is your reason for stating that strychnine, when it has done its work, continues as strychnine in the system? Those who say that some change takes place argue that as food undergoes a change when taken into the body, so does the poison. 
it becomes decomposed, but the change in food takes place during digestion. Consequently, its traces are not found in the blood. Substances like strychnine are absorbed without digestion and may be obtained unchanged from the blood. They may be administered in various ways. In your judgment, will any amount of putrefaction prevent the discovery of strychnine? To say that it is absolutely indestructible would be absurd, but within ordinary limits, no. I have found it at the end of forty days. What is the probable relative rapidity of the action of strychnine in an empty and a full stomach? The emptier the stomach, the quicker the action. Cross-examined by the Attorney-General. I am a lecturer on surgery. Mr. Morley, who was called for the prosecution, is a lecturer on chemistry. Part, perhaps half, of the experiments on the sixty animals were made by me and Mr. Morley jointly. There was nothing to distinguish the experiments which I made alone from those which I made jointly with him. I state the apparent results of the whole. My experiments were spread over a period of thirty years. Many of them have been made since the Leeds case. Some of them were made in reference to this case. I can't say how many. Now, don't put yourself in a state of antagonism to me, but tell me how many of your experiments were made in reference to this particular case. I cannot answer that question. The great bulk certainly were not. I was first concerned in this case about the time of the death of the person at Leeds. I was applied to. I was in correspondence with the attorney for the defence. The details of the Leeds case were forwarded to him by me, and I called his attention to them. The general dose in these experiments was from half a grain to two grains. Half a grain is sufficient to destroy life in larger animals. I have seen both a dog and cat die from that dose, but not always. Some animals, as a species, are more susceptible than those of a different species, and among animals of the same species, some are more susceptible than others. The symptoms in the experiments I have mentioned did not appear after so long a period as an hour. We have had to repeat the dose of poison in some instances when half a grain has been given. That happened in the case of a cat. Symptoms of spasm were produced, but the animal did not die. She had not, however, swallowed the doses. I think I have known animals of the cat species killed with half a grain. Have you any doubt about it? Yes. Half a grain, then, is the minimum dose which will kill a cat. I think it would be the minimum dose in the case of an old, strong cat. If administered in a fluid state, I think a smaller dose would suffice. Harried breathing is one of the first symptoms. Afterwards, there are twitching and tremblings of the muscles, then convulsions. Is there any diversity, as in the intervals and the order of the symptoms, in animals of the same species? They certainly don't occur after the same intervals of time, but I should say they generally occur in the order I have described. There is some difference in the periods at which the convulsions take place. Some animals will die after less convulsion than others, but an animal generally dies after four or five. In one or two instances, an animal has died after one convulsion. In those instances, a dose has been given equal in amount to another dose which has not produced the same effect. 
the order in which the muscles are convulsed varies to some extent the muscles of the limbs are generally affected first the convulsions generally occur simultaneously do you know any case of strychnine in which the rigidity after death was greater than the usual rigor mortis i think not i don't think there is any peculiar rigidity produced by strychnine have you never found undue rigidity in a human subject after death from strychnine considerably less in the anonymous case to which we have referred were not the hands curved and the feet arched by muscular contraction no more than is usual in cases of death from ordinary causes the limbs were rigid but not more than usual in the face of the medical profession i ask you whether you signed a report stating that quote, the hands were curved and the feet decidedly arched by muscular contraction end quote and whether you meant by those words that there was no more than the ordinary rigidity of death certainly i stated so at the time where in the report no in conversation allow me to explain that a distinction was drawn between the muscles of the different parts of the body i heard mr morley's evidence with regard to experiments on animals and his statement that after death there was an interval of flaccidity after which rigidity commenced more than if it had been occasioned by the usual rigor mortis you don't agree with that statement i do not i generally found the right side of the heart full does the fact of the heart in cook's case having been found empty lead you to the conclusion that death was not caused by strychnine among other things it does i heard the evidence of dr watson as to the case of agnes sennett in which the heart was found distended and empty also that of mr taylor as to the post-mortem examination of mrs smith no doubt he stated that the heart in that case was also empty and do those facts exercise no influence on your judgment they would not unless i knew how the post-mortem examination had been made if it was commenced at the head the blood being fluid the large drains would be opened and the blood from natural causes would drain away do you know how the post-mortem examination was made in this case no excuse me i do the chest and the abdomen not the head were first opened the heart then was not emptied in the first instance no then what occasioned the contraction of the heart when the heart is emptied it is usually contracted but how do you account for its contraction and emptiness i cannot say that i am able to account for it lord campbell would the heart contract if there were blood in it no lord campbell when you find the heart contracted you know then that it was contracted at the moment of death it is necessary to draw a distinction between the two cavities it is very common to find the left ventricle contracted and hard while the right is uncontracted lord campbell that is death by asphyxia precisely by the attorney-general in cook's case the lungs were described as not congested entosema is of two kinds one of them consists of dilation of the cells the other of a rupture of the cells when animals die from strychnine entosema occurs i don't know the character of the emphysema in cook's case 
it did not occur to me to have the question put to the witnesses who described the post-mortem examination to what constitutional symptoms about cook do you ascribe the convulsions from which he died not to any was not the fact of his having syphilis an important ingredient in your judgment upon his case it was i judge that he died from convulsions by the combination of symptoms what evidence have you to suppose that he was liable to excitement and depression of spirits the fact that after winning the race he could not speak for three minutes anything else mr jones stated that he was subject to mental depression excitement will produce a state of brain which will be followed at some distance by convulsions i think dr bamford made a mistake when he said the brain was perfectly healthy do you mean to set up that opinion against that of dr devonshire and dr harland who were present at the post-mortem my opinion is founded in part upon the evidence taken at the inquest in part on the depositions with the brain and the system in the condition in which cooks were i believe it quite possible for convulsions to come on and destroy a person i do not believe that he died from apoplexy he was under the influence of morphia i don't ascribe his death to morphia except that it might assist in producing a convulsive attack i should think morphia not very good treatment considering the state of excitement he was in do you mean to say on your oath that you think he was in a state of excitement at rugeley i wish to give my evidence honestly morphia when given in an injured state of the brain often disagrees with the patient but what evidence have you as to the injured state of the brain sickness often indicates it i can't say whether the attack of sunday night was an attack of convulsions i think that the sunday attack was one of a similar character but not so intense as the attack of tuesday in which he died i don't think he had convulsions on the sunday but he was in that condition which often precedes convulsions i think he was mistaken when he stated that he was awoke by a noise i believe he was delirious that is one of the symptoms on which i found my opinion any intestinal irritation will produce convulsions in a tetanic form i have known instances in children i have not seen an instance in an animal medical writers state that such cases do occur i know no name for convulsions of that kind have you ever known a case of convulsions of that kind terminating in death in which the patient remained conscious to the last i have not where epilepsy terminates in death consciousness is gone i have known four cases of traumatic and five or six of idiopathic tetanus you heard mr jones make this statement of the symptoms of cook after the commencement of the paroxysms after he swallowed the pills he uttered loud screams threw himself back in the bed and was dreadfully convulsed he said raise me up i shall be suffocated the convulsions affected every muscle of the body and were accompanied by stiffening of the limbs i endeavoured to raise cook with the assistance of palmer but found it quite impossible owing to the rigidity of the limbs when cook found we could not raise him up he asked me to turn him over he was then quite sensible i turned him on his side i listened to the action of his heart 
I found that it gradually weakened, and asked Palmer to fetch some spirits of ammonia to be used as a stimulant. When he returned, the pulsations of the heart were gradually ceasing, and life was almost extinct. Cook died very quietly a very short time afterwards. When he threw himself back in bed, he clinched his hands, and they remained clinched after death. When I was rubbing his neck, his head and neck were unnaturally bent back by the spasmodic action of the muscles. After death, his body was so twisted or bowed that if I had placed it upon its back, it would have rested upon the head and the feet. Now I ask you to distinguish in any one particular between those symptoms and the symptoms of tetanic convulsions. It is not tetanus at all, not idiopathic tetanus. I quite agree with you that it is not idiopathic tetanus, but point out any distinction that you can see between these symptoms and those of real tetanus. I do not know that there is any distinction, except that in a case of tetanus I never saw rigidity continue till death and afterwards. Can you tell me of any case of death from convulsions in which the patient was conscious to the last? I do not know of any. Convulsions occurring after poison has been taken are properly called tetanic. We were told by Sir B. Brodie that while the paroxysms of tetanic convulsion last, there is no difference between those which arise from strychnine and those which arise from tetanus properly so called, but the difference was in the course the symptoms took. Now what do you say is the difference between tetanus arising from strychnine and ordinary tetanus? The hands are less violently contracted. The effect of the spasm is less in ordinary tetanus. The convulsion, too, never entirely passes away. I have stated that tetanus is a disease of days, strychnine of hours and minutes. The convulsive twitching are in strychnine the first symptoms, the last in tetanus. That in tetanus the hands, feet and legs are usually the last affected, while in strychnine they are the first. I gave that opinion after the symptoms in the case of the lady at Leeds, which were described by the witness with them, and I still adhere to it. I never said that Cook's case was one of idiopathic tetanus. I do not think it was a case of tetanus in any sense of the word. It differed from the course of tetanus from strychnine, in the particulars I have already mentioned. Repeat them. There was a sudden accession of the convulsions. Sudden? After what? After the rousing by Jones. There was also the power of talking. Don't you know that Mrs. Smith talked and retained her consciousness to the end? That her last words were, turn me over? She did say something of that kind. No doubt those were the words she used. I believe that in poison from tetanus the symptoms are first observed in the legs and feet. In the animals upon which I have experimented, twitchings in the ears and difficulty of breathing have been the premonitory symptoms. When Cook felt a stiffness and a difficulty of breathing, and said that he should be suffocated on the first night, what were those but premonitory symptoms? Well, he asked to be rubbed, but as far as my experience goes with regard to animals... The Attorney General they can't ask to have their ears rubbed, of course. A laugh. Mr. Sergeant Shee said that the witness 
was about to explain the effect of being rubbed upon the animals. Cross-examined, continued. In no single instance could the animals bear to be touched. Did not Mrs. Smith ask to have her legs and arms rubbed? In the Leeds case, the lady asked to be rubbed before the convulsions came on, but afterwards she could not bear it, and begged that she might not be touched. Can you point out any one point, after the premonitory symptoms, in which the symptoms in this case differ from those of strychnine tetanus? There is the power of swallowing, which is taken away by inability to move the jaw. But have you not stated that lockjaw is the last symptom that occurs in strychnine tetanus? I have. I don't deny that it may be. I am speaking of the general rule. In the Leeds case, it came on very early, more than two hours before death, the paroxysms having continued about two hours and a half. In that case, we believed that the dose was four times repeated. Poison might probably be extracted by chemical process from the tissues, but I never tried it, except in one case of an animal. I am not sure whether poison was in that case given through the mouth. We killed four animals in reference to the Leeds case, and in every instance we found strychnine in the contents of the stomach. In one case we administered it by two processes, and one failed and the other succeeded. Re-examined. In making reports upon cases such as that which have been referred to, we state ordinary appearances. We state the facts without anything more. Mr. William Herapath, examined by Mr. Grove, QC. I am a professor of chemistry and toxicology at the Bristol Medical School. I have studied chemistry for more than 40 years and toxicology for 30 I have experimented on the poison of strychnine. I have seen no case of a human subject during life, but I have examined a human body after death. In one case I examined the contents of the stomach, and I found strychnine about three days after death. There are several tests, sulfuric acid and bichromate of potash, sulfuric acid and puce-coloured oxide of lead, sulfuric acid and peroxide of lead, sulfuric acid and peroxide of manganese, etc. The lower oxides of lead would not succeed. These are all colour tests and produce a purple colour passing to red. Another class of tests give a different colour with impure but not with pure strychnia. The process used previous to these tests is for the purpose of producing strychnia. I obtained evidence of strychnia by the colour tests in the case I have mentioned. I have experimented upon animals with regard to strychnine in eight or nine cases. I have analysed the bodies in two cases in which I destroyed the animals myself. Both of them were cats. I gave the first one grain of strychnia in a solid form. The animal took the poison at night and I found it dead in the morning. It was dreadfully contorted and rigid the limbs extended, the head turned round, not to the back, but to the side, the eyes protruding and staring, the iris expanded so as to be almost invisible. I found strychnine in the urine, which had been ejected, and also in the stomach, by the tests I have mentioned. I administered the same quantity of strychnine in a solid form to another cat, 
it remained very quiet for fifteen or sixteen minutes but seemed a little restless in its eyes and in breathing in thirty-five minutes it had a terrible spasm the extremities and the head being drawn together and the feet extended i watched it for three hours the first spasm lasted a minute or two the saliva dripped from its mouth and it forcibly ejected its urine it had a second spasm a few minutes afterwards it soon recovered and remained still with the exception of a trembling all over it continued in that state for three hours during nearly two hours and a half it was in a very peculiar state it appeared to be electrified all through blowing upon it or touching the basket in which it was placed produced a kind of electric jump like a galvanic shock i left it in three hours thinking it would recover but in the morning i found it dead in the same indurated and contorted condition as the former animal i examined the body thirty-six hours after death and found strychnia in the urine in the stomach and upper intestine in the liver and in the blood of the heart i have discovered strychnia in all other cases by the same tests but i took extraordinary means to get rid of organic matter in all cases in which strychnia has been given i have been able to find it and not only strychnia but also the nux vomica from which it is taken i have found nux vomica in a fox and in other animals the detection of nux vomica is more complicated than that of strychnia in one case the animal had been buried two months i have experimented with strychnia not in a body but mixed purposely with organic putrefying matter i have found it in all cases whatever was the state of decomposition of the matter are you of opinion that where strychnia has been taken in a sufficient dose to poison it can and ought to be discovered yes unless the body has been completely decomposed that is unless decomposition has reduced it to a dry powder i am of opinion from the accounts given by dr taylor and the other witnesses that if it had existed in the body of cook it ought to have been discovered i am aware of no cause for error in the analyses if the organic matter had been properly got rid of the experiments i have mentioned were made in bristol i have made experiments in london and found strychnia in the stomach liver and blood of an animal cross-examined by the attorney-general i don't profess to be a physiologist i have principally experimented on the stomach until lately i tried my chemical process on the eighth of this month with a view to the present case the experiment here was on a dog i experimented on the tissues of a cat at bristol and of a dog in london i found strychnia in the blood the heart and the urine of the cat besides the stomach one grain was given to the dog it was a large dog i have seen a cat killed with a quarter of a grain i have said that dr taylor ought to have found strychnine have you not said that you had no doubt strychnine had been taken but that dr taylor had not gone the right way to find it i may have said so i had a strong opinion from reading various newspaper reports among others the illustrated times that strychnia had been given i have expressed that opinion no doubt freely people have talked a great deal to me about the matter and i can't recollect every word i have said but that was my general opinion 
re-examined by mr grove what is the smallest quantity of strychnia that your process is capable of detecting i am perfectly sure i could detect the fifty thousandth part of a grain if it was unmixed with organic matter if i put ten grains in a gallon or seventy thousand grains of water i could discover its presence in the tenth part of a grain of that water it is more difficult to detect when mixed with organic matter if a person had taken a grain a very small quantity would be found in the heart but no doubt it could be found i made four experiments with a large dog to which i had given the eighth part of a grain i have discovered it by change of colour in the thirty-second part of the liver of a dog mr grove said he believed his lordship was of opinion that experiments could not be shown lord campbell we have intimated that that is our clear opinion End of section sixteen